0: Welcome to the ILG Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing SOSR, some other substantial reason, and how that might be applied for individual employers and direct payment recipients. I'm David Ashley. I work for Mark Baker Limited Insurance. I've worked in and around direct payments for many years in various roles. I've also been an active member of the London Self-Directed Support Forum Organising Committee for over 15 years.
1: Rachel Harkin. I'm Head of Legal Advice Services at Independent Living Group, trading as ILG support. I'm passionate about supporting individual employers by any means necessary. But for the purposes of our podcast conversation, I'm going to look at things from the legal perspective with a special focus on employment law.
0: The content of this podcast is for general advice only. For specific cases, always seek legal advice. Lovely. Thanks, Rachel. Okay, so SOSR. I know how um, I've often described it as we have five fair reasons to dismiss, and SOSR, I don't know where I got this from... sometimes see there's a bucket where if it's not one of the other four things, it drops into the SOSR b- bucket. It's a substantial reason, another reason, not in the main kind of what the main four that we might think of conduct, capability, etc. How, how does that um, definition fit with the actual legal context, Rachel?
1: It's uh, probably a fair way to explain it, really, because what we've got then is under the Employment Rights Act 1996, a very significant piece of legislation for employers and employees. We've got Section 98 that provides for what we call potentially fair reasons to dismiss. And you have mentioned a couple there, conduct, redundancy, capability, illegality. And then we have at uh, 2.1, 1b of section 98 it says if it isn't otherwise in that list that I've just reeled off then a dismissal is potentially fair for some other substantial reason of a kind such as to justify the dismissal of an employee so it really is it's drafted very very openly in the legislation itself
0: Right. Brilliant. So and I guess the other thing I often say, uh, which I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with, is it's not some other reason. There's a very careful S placed in there because it's not just any reason, any reason you feel like you can just dismiss somebody, which um, it has to be substantial.
1: Substantial is the word.
0: Absolutely. So um, I guess today we need to look at you know, what that really means. Just dig into you know, what defines an SOSR dismissal as opposed to another type of dismissal. What counts as substantial? And specifically in our, in our sector, but no doubt you'll, you'll take a lead and have to take a lead from other sectors.
1: Yes. So an example would be reputational damage. Let's take, for instance, a school who has a teacher. They themselves are not guilty of any misconduct whatsoever, but they are associated with somebody in their private life who is guilty of a crime, perhaps sexual offences, convictions. That association with that individual can cause reputational damage on the school who have, over the course of a number of cases, justified a dismissal on grounds of SOSR. Another example is also a variation of terms. So there are occasions where circumstances are so significant that an employer can justify terminating an original contract and reinstating the employee on new terms, and that in itself could be seen as an SOSR dismissal. Please make sure that you take advice before you start doing that. (laughs) It's important that all of the facts have been considered. But it is another SOSR that has been established in previous cases.
0: Right, brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. So that's the key, isn't it? It's identifying what could be classed as substantial there. And I think in direct payments, then, the application of SOSR in direct payments, an example I know we've talked about and, and this comes up from time to time is third party pressure and how that might work in a direct payment setting. The idea that an employer is funded by authority or a ccg who might take a view that employing a certain person uh, and there may be parties information about that person employing that person is no longer feasible they don't want to allow it they don't want to fund it they don't think it's safe they may instruct somebody to uh, disassociate with the pa terminate their contract stop employing them using their funding in the job setting between the employer and the pa there may not be a capability or a conduct or whatever issue, but we know there's this pressure being applied externally on the employer. Uh, I presume that's kind of thing, SOSR?
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah. The case law that we have on third party pressure deals with scenarios where the employee isn't necessarily alleged to have committed an act of misconduct themselves. The employer doesn't have a disciplinary process to follow because there's no allegations there. But because of something that a third party is putting on that business that actually means that they perhaps would lose a very important client, that would mean the business itself could fail, you know, really significant facts behind this. The fact that that third party is doing it, let's say a customer, you know, who's, who's really not happy with that worker delivering goods to their warehouse or something of that nature. Um, then we can see that the business might be forced into a corner. They have no choice but to dismiss. That has been seen to be a valid SOSR dismissal. So you're quite right, David. We take that principle and apply it in those scenarios where perhaps we have somebody who is receiving a direct payment or personal health budget, and they're quite happy with their PA. They have no issues, no qualms. They have got no disciplinary action to follow. But because of other safeguarding concerns, you might find that um, social workers, the funding body, have problems with that PA and are saying, look, this is going to impact on your funding if you do not remove this PA from service. So with a careful approach, uh, we can potentially dismiss on SOSR for that very reason.
0: Brilliant. And it's, I mean, listening to you talk there, it's one of the reasons I think why an awareness of, the employment law repercussions for direct payment recipients are so important for funding bodies to understand because we know there are decisions sometimes made or or not made as clearly as they could be, and the impact that has on the employer, on the process they have to follow on the advice they have to take, on the risks that um, you know they are that, that they are then landed with if they get that process wrong are quite serious and quite significant. so I think um, hopefully they're all listening to this podcast. Rachel, that's fine so we'll be, uh, we'll be having having an impact.
1: I think you've actually nicely led me into talking about what, how we actually determine what exactly is fair. And, and it's worth mentioning Section 98, uh, subsection four of the Employment Rights Act, says that in all the circumstances, so in order to determine if a dismissal is fair, we take in all the circumstances, including the size and administrative resources of the employer, um, have they acted reasonably. In treating the reason as sufficient to dismiss, and the determination of whether or not it's fair shall be determined in accordance with equity and the substantial merits of the case. Now, we've also seen, and we'll perhaps we've got a couple of cases to talk about, but it's important to reflect on this. We've also seen in cases past that for us to establish a fair reason for SOSR, we've got to determine that there is that the employer had a potentially fair reason. So one of those in the list of section 98, potentially fair reasons to dismiss. Does it fall under one of those categories, the reason that we're using? And then is that belief reasonably held? Does the employer reasonably hold the belief that that is the reason that this employment contract is coming to an end? And in, for SOSR, that reason cannot be whimsical or So can't be open to change or fanciful thoughts. It's important, as you say, David, that that any funding body, anybody who is influencing decisions about employment for PAs and individual employers needs to recognise that they've got to be handing over really sound, solid reasons for the dismissal. The employer has got to establish these tests in law in order not to face an unfair dismissal case.
0: Yeah, brilliant. And I did look up whimsical and capricious, and uh, just from a point of view of supporting and advising direct payment recipients, it it was quite telling. So, whimsical being fanciful and capricious being uh, unpredictable. And we can all imagine and can think of direct payment recipients, no doubt, that we have supported that have at times said things that are whimsical and capricious, or I want to get rid of this PA. And actually, when you unpick it, the reasons might be. well, probably aren't a reason, don't constitute a reasonably held belief to dismiss somebody, and certainly don't fit into one of our uh, fair reasons to dismiss. So it's about unpicking that. And I guess that's the skill of ILG support, hopefully with the support of a local advisor who can, who can translate that for you. Right. So let's look at some actual cases then. But before we do so, I mean, I think it's important to just reiterate. You and I, I know, have uh, spoken at length about this over the years. Um, The specific set of circumstances that an individual employer finds themselves in, if they're in a receipt of direct payments, employing a PA, it's not your standard employment. Our employer group are are distinct. And we know that the application of the law to that group um, doesn't yield particularly, that, that we have legislation, we have case law, and. It's not designed for our employer group. And we we often fret about that and how will things play out. And I think SOSR arguably is kind of a really good place to examine that because, you know, what is substantial to Marks and Spencers or Tescos when it comes to dismissing an employee? We all know instinctively that's very different to an individual who's employing a PA to perhaps provide intimate personal care. Um, on a day-to-day basis, it integrals their, you know, normal life. You know, a relationship breakdown, or you know, what's substantial to them is going to be very different, isn't it? But I think we need to have a look at some cases to understand. I mean, can we rely on that, or are we hamstrung by, you know, the the body of case law? And I think, therefore, there are a couple of cases, Rachel, we can talk about that we're aware of that I think really shed shine a light on that i should say and let, and give us a steer about what the tribunal and judgments uh, judges might make of of these kind of scenarios i think one case in particular i i would mention that we that we've looked at in preparation for today's a and b we don't have the names that's a and b are the names we have on the uh, on the tri- tribunal judgment in this particular case the person assistant worked for 7 years for somebody who lacked full capacity, wasn't managing the employment responsibilities, they those were organized and, and uh by one of, by her parents. Um we had a team of PA supporting H, as she's referred to in the uh, judgment. Uh and there was a kind of breakdown over time of the relationship between the PA and the person in receipt of services. And what's more interesting, I think, what to paint the picture, there was a breakdown in relationship between this particular PA and the other team of PAs. And there was a series of events that didn't quite amount to uh, conduct, but something was going on. It's clear from reading the judgment that something's happening, that, that, that the relationship is kind of being chipped away and that the most important person, the person who received the support, her connection to this particular PA is being eroded by this series of events. But it's clear that the other PAs have, in 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 their own way, possibly influenced how H is feeling. Um, and this whole kind of cacophony of events and noise around this PA's kind of work life have contributed in the end to quite a swift dismissal on the grounds of SOSR, not for conduct, although there were kind of one or two issues uh, occurring, that amounted to an SSR dismissal. And then we can see from the uh, judgment that the judge has said clearly, the respondents acted reasonably in all the circumstances in treating some of a substantial reason as a sufficient reason for dismissing the claimant. What's interesting, I think, is that they go on to say in these exceptional circumstances, by which they are referring to what we would consider normal, um, they conducted a reasonable investigation as best they could and having given the claimant the opportunity to respond and try to resolve matters, there was no viable alternative. No one will ever be sure why a relationship which had been good for seven years ceased to be, but the respondent's view it had was well within the band of reasonableness. It reasonably concluded H did not want the claimant to be her carer, and if she was not dismissed, H would continue to feel that. I mean... That's incredibly instructive, and as we will make sure a copy of A and B, the judgment is is posted underneath the podcast on the ILG webcast, uh, website. Rachel, what do you what what are your reflections on that? That's from 2020.
1: It's interesting that is 2020 case, and and it's gratifying to see it because they, it, this has been the approach that we've taken over the years. That. You know, we do need to recognise what the judge has referred to as exceptional circumstances. And you're quite right to say that, well, for us, that's our bread and butter. We, you know, we are advising individual employers all the time. But your instincts do say, you know, surely we have got to take into account The specific circumstances of that case, Section 98, says we can take into account size and administrative resources of the employer. We're going to make a decision in accordance with equity and the substantial merits of the case. So, the very fact that this employer group um, are not the ones with the power and the resources, which typically is the way employment law is structured, it recognises employers as the ones with the power. The fact that that isn't necessarily the case, and we have a very different set of circumstances, it's really gratifying to see that coming out in employment tribunals. We have, over the years, applied it um, SOSL Dismissals quite neatly, where we've got, let's say, mum and dad, who are the responsible person on the budget, and they are the employer, but actually the PA is working for their daughter or son, maybe. And um, that relationship's broken down between the person they're caring for and the PA. It's easier for mum and dad to be able to say, Look, oh, we've done everything we possibly can. We've tried this, we've tried that, we've tried the other, and we're still not getting anywhere. So, actually, over the years, we have applied that um, frequently. And it's really nice to see that that has played out in the employment tribunal, albeit that it, it was only a first instance case that we're looking for at the moment.
0: So, are there Cases then, it, and I know the answer to this question, but for the purposes of the podcast, are there cases, Rachel? And is there a more instructive case, for example, when the employer is the person receiving support that we can lean on for um, a bit of a steer?
1: There is indeed. We had an employment appeal tribunal, Hutchinson and Calvert, back in 2006, That specifically dealt with a breakdown of trust and confidence, which is interesting because usually this this breakdown of trust and confidence is, is an implied term that is intended to be mutual, but largely the breakdown in trust and confidence is cited as a reason for constructive dismissal. So the employee feels that the employer has broken that trust and confidence and that's resulted in them resigning and claiming constructive unfair dismissal. As a rule, we need to avoid using that uh, if we've got conduct issues, but we can see in Hutchinson and Calvert that, yeah, actually in the case of an individual employer where there has been a breach or a breakdown in trust between them and the employee, that can play out to a fair SOSR dismissal.
0: This is so, so useful, Rachel. Thank you. So, um... If you don't mind, could you just explore the facts of that case a little bit more so we can dive into it and see how it applies?
1: Yes, so Mr Hutchinson was a chap who had muscular dystrophy and it's said in the judgment that he had very serious disabilities. So we're working on the presumption that the PA was supporting him with intimate personal care. They had been working together for four years, so a very significant period of time. And it was said that the relationship became frayed. So we're not accusing this PA of any serious acts of gross misconduct that would have justified a disciplinary process and a summary dismissal on such grounds. What did end up happening is it was said that she had shouted at him, or at least that's what she was told by his mother, who she was in regular contact with, and that's possibly part of the reason the relationship broke down. Maybe she wasn't talking to Mr Hutchinson as much as she should have been and so it was undermining his authority perhaps and her mother said that it's because she shouted at him they actually despite the length of service which isn't advisable I would say summarily dismissed the PA so dismissed her without due process without any notice at all The Employment Tribunal, at first instance, focused on the lack of procedure. They focused on uh, the concern that they hadn't gone through a fair process, as we would expect, you know, setting out the facts in writing, inviting them to a formal meeting, giving the chance of an appeal. They hadn't done that in this particular case. And I think, really, that was the reason that the Employment Tribunal said that the dismissal was unfair. However, it went on to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And the tribunal at that stage said that there had been an error in law, in that what should have happened is they should have one, checked whether or not or assessed whether or not the reason for the dismissal did fall within one of the potentially fair reasons, and then question whether or not that reason was a reasonably held belief. So it really is quite a subjective. Requirement for the tribunal to focus on the employer's belief system in whether or not that reason is fair that they're giving to the employee. It can't be whimsical, can't be capricious. So, the tribunal said in this particular case, or the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, that whenever a tribunal is considering a case such as this, they should bear in mind the fact that such cases are wholly exceptional and that it's necessary to make a very careful assessment of the nature of the relationship. In this particular case, who knows why the relationship that's been ongoing for so long can suddenly fray, but the nature of that intimate relationship, it is reasonable to say that the relationship can break down, that the trust and confidence can break down, and that can be a potentially fair reason to terminate the employment of the PA.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Rachel. So there is some evidence there that the tribunal will take into account the specifics of our employer group, the nature of the relationship between personal assistants and individual employers recognised for what it is and the impact that might have um, with regards to fair dismissals. So that's hopeful, I would say, um, and gives us quite a lot to go on if you do get a call at ILG support, which I know you do from these kind of cases.
1: Yeah, very, very frequently, really.
0: Brilliant. And so on that then, what it, it, I feel, I feel we should just talk a bit about the process and what would happen. So if we imagine a scenario where somebody does call up, uh, like Hutchison Calvert, that kind of scenario, and, and something's gone wrong, they're not satisfied, they're not happy, the relationship's breaking down. From the point of view of an advisor, how are you approaching that inquiry? What's the first step? process.
1: Okay, well, in, from the point of view of an advisor, we've got to be aware of these um, these legal tests. We've got to be aware that the reason that we're presenting to the PA has got to be a potentially fair reason. So we're making sure that it does fit in, within that category. And it isn't something else. It's not discrimination. It's not because they've made complaints. Um, about, you know, asserting one of their statutory rights, health and safety, some of those automatic unfair dismissals. And there's a lovely, (laughs) lovely set of principles that we can discuss in future podcasts. So we're going to be hyper aware of that. But we also need to be checking in on this. Is this a reasonably held belief? Not whimsical, not capricious. So it's not because they are feeling that way out today that this is just fundamental there's been a very significant and as you said at the beginning substantial reason for this contract coming to an end so we're going to want to explore that we're going to want to be talking to the employer drawing out all of the facts we are going to be checking whether or not we've actually got a neat conduct issue because what we've got to be aware of david is that In Great Britain, we've got the ACAS Code of Conduct for disciplinaries in particular, where we're saying to an employee that there is... um misconduct is the reason that you're going to be facing disciplinary action we should be following the core principles of the ACAS code of practice I mentioned before due process that's really what I'm referring to it's this open transparent process where before you make your decisions you are telling the employee what the problem is you're setting out allegations in writing you're giving them an the opportunity to prepare a defense to what that what they're accused of You're giving them an opportunity to come to a meeting. They have the right to be accompanied by a trade union representative or colleague, and they have got the right to appeal the decision if they don't agree with it. Okay, this is a very important process that's adopted by employment advisors because it is a statutory code of practice. Um, Now, then, what we see in Hutchinson and Calvert is that officially, SOSR doesn't fall within the ACAS code of practice. So in theory, the process doesn't have to be quite so formal.
0: But surely the employer must at least be reasonable, Rachel?
1: Well, absolutely. And we also have some case law that suggests even for an SOSR dismissal, if the reason the relationship broke down, and this is more recent than the Hutchinson case, so important for everybody to note, if the reason that the relationship's broken down has some... Focus on conduct if that was if the employee's behavior wasn't right, then the employment tribunal may well apply the ACAS code of practice to it. So it's important to ensure that where possible we do go through a very transparent process. And you know, let me put law to one side for a moment because it's all well and good talking about the theory, but I think we also need to get a bit practical too sometimes. If we are able to guide an employer through this procedure, let's get them to the end of an employment contract that's giving them a lot of upset. If we can do that, and it just, even if that process is a tad bit longer than they would like because they want to dismiss straight away, actually, what they could be doing is saving themselves months of trouble. Because we've been open and honest and transparent with the worker, we've taken them through, we've explained any allegations or issues in writing, we've brought them into a meeting, we've given them the right to be accompanied and and given them the chance to appeal. That actually helps to open up the communication. And in doing so, reduces the chances of a dispute later on down the line reduces the chances of it going to early conciliation, reduces the chances of facing employment tribunal proceedings. It, it's important that we at ILG try and help our employers not to face that. Um, because it does actually exponentially add to the stress over the long term. By taking good sound advice and following sensible steps, they can avoid that problem from happening.
0: Yeah, here, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's what we're here to support. People with um, now, just a couple of the points before we wrap this up, Rachel. I, I know in, in the back of my mind that there are some changes uh, or a deviation, I should say from the kind of rules that apply in the rest of Britain and in Northern Ireland. Could you just clarify how they'd apply in, in, in SSR cases or certainly in the uh, the process?
1: Yes, yeah, so in Northern Ireland, there is a shorter qualifying period for unfair dismissal for a start. There's only one year for them to qualify to bring a case. And there is also a statutory procedure that's necessary. So that's one, you've got to set out the allegations in writing. Two, hold a formal meeting. And three, allow an appeal. So very similar I would also add that the ACAS code of practice we've been talking about through most of the podcast is not applicable in Northern Ireland. There is another code of practice that has been provided by the Labour Relations Agency. They follow very, very similar steps and, and it's that principle of fairness, openness, and transparency.
0: Right. Okay. So, uh, brilliant. So, it's just to keep you guys on your toes, then, I suppose, if you are taking calls in Northern Ireland or wherever it is across the UK, good to remind people. There are some differences. Um, I think that's us. I think we've wrapped that up. We've covered SOSR. Is there anything else we need to say? I mean, we could talk about it for hours. There's nothing else we need to add, Rachel.
1: No, I don't believe so. I know it's um, a really interesting um, piece of, of law, really. It gives us an opportunity to consider the specific facts of individuals um, scenarios it does give us a possibility what i would say is please don't come away from this podcast thinking that oh great you know we've got a catch-all for any reason we want to dismiss that's it brilliant you know we'll shoehorn it into sosr it's not quite gonna work that way an employment tribunal will explore the facts in detail they will dig deep and so that's what you can expect when you talk to an ilg advisor as well
0: 100 percent. so we need to remember that the reason must be substantial. Um, employers must be reasonable uh, and yeah we need to be very careful still but we do have some case law on our side so brilliant, thanks thanks again Rachel um, that's goodbye from me, join us next time when we talk about whistleblowing
1: and goodbye from me
0: the content of this podcast is for general advice only for specific cases always seek legal advice